soon a day is coming, it draweth nigh, when a host shall gather in the sky. And through clouds like thunder will the Lord descend, when he comes the judgment day begins. Every foe that stands against you shall fall on bended knee. Every doubting I shall see you return triumphantly. Every tongue that has denied you shall cry that you are Lord, you are Lord. Christ is Lord, mighty God, Messiah, the Prince of Peace, high exalted name above all names, name that casts out demons, casts death to cease, lifted up and worthy to be praised. Every foe that stands against you shall fall on bended knee. Every eye that, eye that sees you return triumphantly. Every tongue that has denied you shall cry that you are Lord, you are Lord. Christ is Lord. And they call him Jesus, he saves from sin every soul who calls upon his name. He's the conquering lion, the redeeming lamb, worthy one who died for sinners slain. Every foe that stands against you shall fall on bended knee. Every doubting I shall see you return triumphantly. Every tongue that has denied you shall cry that you are Lord, you are Lord. Christ is Lord. Amen. Let's go ahead and dismiss the kids ages four years old through fourth grade. Four years old through fourth grade. I'll be honest, I had to make change for plans to, to sing yesterday, <laughs> okay? So we had a group that was gonna sing a song that we've been working on for a few weeks. And uh, I wanted to introduce that song though because the plan is eventually that's gonna become our welcome song. I want us to sing a, that song because it lifts up and exalts the name of Jesus. Um, it's us joining together as a church, acknowledging the lordship of
the ministry. Now, a lot of times I think when we are serving God and we are doing right or we are involved in ministry in some way, we expect our lives to have no problems, right? We expect there to be no roadblocks in the way. Things should be easy. It should be easy to serve the Lord. I'm doing what you want, right, Lord? And, and we get into this mindset, and then when something happens, it can cause us to struggle spiritually. It can cause us to become de- disheartened, and we lose our focus on what God has wanted us to do. But the honest truth is, anytime someone sets out to do right and to serve God, whether it's church ministry, raising your family to serve the Lord, or just day-to-day living for the Lord, you are going to face obstacles and opposition in that process. Life always doesn't seem like it wants us to be successful as believers. And we often, we have enemies that we fight on every hand. We know as believers that we have three enemies. We have Satan and his minions. We have the world. The world doesn't want you to live for the Lord. But more than that, we have our flesh. Honestly, that's the, that's the battle that we fight more than anything else. Day in and day out is our own flesh that keeps us from wanting to serve the Lord. But all these enemies, they want to smother us and, and to take away our, our resolve to do right and to serve the Lord. In our text here, in Acts chapter 13, God has clearly called Paul and Barnabas into the ministry. But right out of the gate, they face opposition. Opposition is not a sign that you are on the wrong path. In fact, in many cases, opposition is a sign that you are on the right path. Paul and Barnabas were doing what God had called them to do. They were in the right place spiritually. But facing opposition wears down a person. And we can get discouraged and think about quitting. But in life, you will face opposition and abandonment, but that should never discourage us from doing what is right. I think of, um, I'm just going to use Jim and Tanya as an example, okay? So Jim and Tanya have a heart for hospitality ministry. This is something we are discussing right now, okay? And the Lord has put this in their heart, and he has given them this vision. But you know what? There's going to be obstacles. There's going to be things that, Get, that come up in the way that make you stop and question, should we have really done this? Or should, can we keep doing this, right? But how we handle those opposition, that opposition, those obstacles, will, will determine our success in serving God and in doing what is right. So let's go ahead and jump into the text here in Acts chapter 13, verses 4 through 13. We're read earlier um, in the service here. I want to look at, first of all, Paul and Barnabas faced opposition from without, from without, okay? In verse four, it says, so they being sent forth by the Holy Ghost departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus, and when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had also John to their ministry. And when they had gone through the isle unto Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus. Now in their journeys, the first place that they go to after God has sent them out is the island of Cyprus, okay? Now if you remember previously when we studied about the life of Barnabas, this is Barnabas' home island. This is where he is from. He is from the island of of Cyprus. And the the traveling that they do in this text is all on the island of Cyprus. There are two main cities. On the first uh, the first city they came to is Salamis, which is the capital city on the eastern side of the island. But then they traveled to Paphos, which is on the southwest. Okay, in order to get from east to southwest, you've got to go across 
the entire island, right? Okay. But they went across the entire island preaching the gospel. Paul and Barnabas have been called, and now they are setting out on their first day of ministry. I don't know how many preachers remember their first day of ministry, but I remember our first day on the mission field. It was not a great day, okay? So we, uh, we arrive in India, and uh, we fly up to northern, northern India, and we get out of the airport, we hire a taxi, and we get into this hotel in the middle of town. And actually, I went to go find food. I think that's what I was doing. Katie, are you in here? No, okay. I think I went to go find food, and I left Katie in the, in the hotel. Well, I spent hours trying to find my way back to the hotel. I didn't know how to get back to this place. And so Katie's sitting there all alone in the hotel. Then finally, I arranged to get a Jeep to take us up to the town we were going to be living in. But the missionary who was going to receive us, who was supposed to be helping us get settled, decided he was going to take a trip into the jungles and wasn't there. Okay? And the person we were going to be staying with, we had no idea where she, left, where she lived. And so I tried to talk to the guy driving the Jeep and... He didn't speak English. And I'm like, hey, I want to go to this hotel. At least put me here at this hotel. We've looked it up online. This is where we want to go. He doesn't understand. So what he does is he drops us off at a hotel that has no running water and no electricity. <laughs> okay, so we're in a hotel with no running water, no electricity. We don't know where we are. We don't know what we're going to do. We have no way to contact the person that we're supposed to stay with. It was kind of a pretty crummy day, <laughs> that, that very first day. Eventually, though, we found somebody who knew about where she lived and so we made our way up the mountain found her house and we were settled in and god did amazing things god knit our hearts with the people there in india and gave us opportunities for ministry one pastor there in india told us that we had done more in six months than missionaries who'd been there for seven years had done in that town because god was allowing us to do things and was accomplishing things but honestly if we had stopped right there at our first day when things were difficult we never would have done anything for the Lord while we were there. We would have quit on him. And I think a lot of times when we set out to do something for the Lord on that very first day, maybe we're excited, but then obstacles hit us, and we stop and we question, and we, we slip back into thinking, oh, no, maybe I wasn't supposed to have done this to begin with. And Paul, Paul and Barnabas, they face opposition, first of all, from without, from people who are not part of their group, from a lost Jew named Bar-Jesus, which there's a little bit of irony here, isn't there? Bar-Jesus literally means son of Jesus, okay? Now, is this man a son of Jesus? You can answer. No, no he is not a son of Jesus, okay? Uh, <clears throat> in fact, in verse number six, it calls him something, or sorry, not verse number six, verse number 10 says, and, and said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil. This man is not a son of Jesus. He is a child of the devil, and he is opposing Paul and Barnabas in their ministry. And we see in, in verse 6 that, that he is described, first of all, as a Jew. Now, why would that be significant? Who did Jesus come to to preach the gospel first? Jews. Who did Paul come to to preach the gospel to first? The Jews. Who were God's people? The Jews. Who were the people who should have received the message? The Jews. But this Jew rejects. This Jew opposes he stands against. And I think sometimes it's oftentimes the people that we expect to support us who tend to be the ones who oppose us the most violently. And so we have a Jew who stands against Paul and Barnabas in their mission. It also says that he is a sorcerer or a magician. Okay, Now, this term put an emphasis on people who communicated with the dead. 
That's the type of person this is. He deals with magic. But he is also called a false prophet. So he put out there that he was able to tell the future. Okay? But we also see in verse 10 that he is uh, full of all subtlety and all mischief. He was a con artist. He was, a trick, he was full of trickery. Okay? The idea behind this word is he would beguile using trick, trickery. He would do things that made people think he was actually doing magic that were not actually magic. And this man, this Jew who opposes Paul from without, he is not just satisfied with rejecting Jesus Christ. He's not just satisfied with, okay, I'm, I'm an atheist and I don't want anything to do with you, okay? That's not, that's not who this man is. Okay, we see in the story here that Paul and Barnabas, they come to, in verse 7, uh, to a man named Sergius Paulus, says, which was the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. Here's a man who is interested in the message that Paul and Barnabas are, are bringing He's interested in the gospel, and he wants to hear it. In fact, he takes the initiative to call them and say, hey, come tell me this message that you are bringing. But what does Bar-Jesus, also called Elimaeus, do? Verse number eight. But Elimaeus the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. This man was not just opposed in himself to the gospel, but he opposed it publicly and he sought to turn other people away from it. And I think in our, our culture, there is a movement within atheism. Back, back when I was younger, maybe when some of you were younger, atheists were, these are the reasons X, Y, Z, and why we don't believe that there is a God. That's not the way atheism works today. There is a movement called new atheism, okay? All of your popular atheists are a part of this group. But their perspective is not to deny the existence of God logically. But their, their goal is to claim that God is morally evil and then to turn other people away from, that, from the faith, to cause them to deconstruct or deconvert from their faith. And that's a popular term that is used today, deconversion or deconstruction of your faith. The problem with deconstruction, there are some benefits to it if you actually are analyzing what you actually believe and determining what you believe. But the problem with it is they never look at the other side. They only ever look at the negative. They look at all the bad things that Christianity has done in history. They don't look at the positive things. They, they look at the arguments against faith in God, but they never look at the positive arguments for God. And so this movement of new atheism is not just happy with denying the existence of God themselves. They are trying to tear down and to destroy people's faith in God. This is what most of our college professors are like in secular colleges. It's one of the dangers you will face in getting a secular degree is there will be people who stand against your Christianity. And these are not stupid people. They are going to have reasons. And they're going to push you to deconstruct your faith. But deconstruction fails because it never seeks to build back up a belief in anything. It never seeks the other side. So we end up with a showdown in verses 9 through 11 here between Saul, Paul, and Elimaeus. It says, Then Saul, who is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? In verse 11, And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness. 
and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. So we come to a, a showdown. God has to deal with this man publicly because he is standing in the way of Sergius Paulus coming to faith. He is opposing the message. And so Paul places a curse on him. It is a temporary curse, he says, for a season. But it was enough to convince Sergius Paulus that the message that Paul and Barnabas were bringing was the truth. Really, the, the irony of this story is this event shows how a Jew who should have received the gospel rejected it, and yet a Roman Gentile believes and places his faith in Jesus Christ. And again, I said sometimes those who we would expect to be all for us are the ones who tend to be the most against us. They can, they can sometimes be the ones who oppose us the most. And Paul and Barnabas, they faced opposition from a non-believer on the outside that could have made them turn back. They could have said, whoa, what is this? We just started. Why, why are we facing this kind of opposition now? And they could have turned back. But they didn't, right? Oftentimes, we face opposition from people, from people we would love, people we would respect, people we would expect to be for us. But opposition comes in the way, first of all, of doubts, or we use the word a wet blanket. Why do we, why do we call a person a wet blanket? Okay? Think about this. If, if you have a fire, okay, and you want to put it out, you're going to throw a wet blanket on top to kind of put that out, right? Okay, that's the idea behind this term. Somebody is on fire for serving the Lord, and you, but yet they face always, I, I've seen this, always they will face opposition from people who just want to throw a wet blanket on it. They want to put out that fire. They want, they, want to, they want to calm everybody down. Okay, whoa, let's stop this now. Okay, and they throw a wet blanket on it by casting doubt on everything. These people want to do some things for God, but there are people who aren't comfortable with that. Okay? So the main plan of attack for the doubters is to, is to cause doubt in, in people and, they, and to cause them to think that this can't ever succeed. Okay? They usually have never tried themselves, but they're so confident this will never succeed because in their mind it doesn't make sense that this could ever succeed. And rather than come up with a solution, they would rather you do nothing for the Lord. They want you to doubt and just stand still. Do nothing. So they cast a wet blanket on you to put out the fire, to put out the enthusiasm for God. But ultimately, what is the real motivation behind this? They're uncomfortable with change. They don't want, they don't want to see things happen because it's not comfortable for them. Okay, And really... These people are not just opposing the preacher. They're not just opposing Paul and Barnabas. Who were they really opposing? They were opposing God. Bar-Jesus was opposing God. And so you face opposition sometimes through doubts or through wet blankets being cast on you. You also face it through criticism. Okay? Opposition most clearly takes the form of criticism. Usually those who are the most critical are the people who are sitting on the sidelines doing nothing. That's, that's usually the truth. They're the spectators. Okay, how many of you guys watch football? Anybody? Okay, nobody? No, okay, some people, okay? Is there ever a call that the umpire makes that you think was incorrect? Okay, is there ever a football player who you think should have gotten a touchdown and he didn't make it to the end zone? And you think, why did he mess up? Why didn't he make it to the, to the touchdown? Let me ask you this. Have you played a, a game of football? Can you run that football down the field and make a touchdown? No, you can't. Okay, so it just illustrates this idea that criticism oftentimes comes from the people who aren't doing the work to begin with. 
They just want to st stand in the background and oppose. I think of the Muppets. You remember those two grumpy old men in the, in the uh, I don't know, balcony that were always criticizing everything that they saw? That's what these people are like. They're just standing in the balcony, criticizing everything that's happening down below. They're not getting involved. They're not doing anything. I have challenged myself. I've challenged my children. I've tried to challenge other people with this truth. If you see something that's wrong, be the change that you want to see. Be the change. If you see there's a lack in the church, something that needs to be fixed, step up and do something about it. Be the person to cause that change to exist. You know, I'm only one man. Can I do everything? I can't. There, I have visions for all kinds of ministries and all kinds of things that could happen at this church. But you know what? I can't do them all, okay? So if you see a lack somewhere, step up and say, hey, I want to take care of this. I want to do this. Again, that goes back to Jim and Tanya. There, this is an issue he and I have been talking about for over a year now, basically. And he's like, the Lord put it on his heart to step up and try to tackle this issue within our church and help us be the change that you want to see. Don't stand in the, in the foyers, in the balcony, watching everybody else do everything and, then, and throw your criticisms down below. So you face opposition by oftentimes people casting wet blankets in doubt. You face it most clearly in criticism. You also face it in rejection. People who just, they, they reject it. They, they don't want anything to, to do with it. And I think, especially when we think about the world outside of our churches, there is a passive rejection of our type of Christianity at the very least, is there not? They don't want anything to do with any type of Christianity that promotes holiness or stands against worldliness. That's not what they want. And, and they may not be attacking us. They may not be lobbying bombs at us or anything like that but they passively reject us. And that can weigh down upon us, and that is a form of opposition that we oftentimes will face from without. But then you also face slander, okay? There's a difference between criticism and slander, because criticism is just gonna be critical. The slander is going to lobby against you, okay? Opposition can take more of a direct form in slander and in gossip. People on the sidelines will oftentimes, like I said, they will judge, they will criticize, your motives or your decisions. The honest truth is most of the time they didn't know all the facts to begin with because there are sometimes things you just can't tell everybody about every situation, right? But they will, they will attack. But most of the time, a lot of the times, they will take it a step further and they will malign you to other people. They will lobby against you to other people to tear you down. That's what Bar-Jesus is doing, isn't it? What is Bar-Jesus doing? He's going to Sergius Paulus and he's trying to lobby against Paul and Barnabas and turn him away from them. These people are not happy to just be against you. They have to turn other people away from you. This is honestly how most church splits happen. There are disagreements in churches. I honestly think disagreements are not bad in churches. If, we, if church is healthy, we will work through these issues. They should not be divorce issues within the church. But a lot of times, people will get something in their head, they'll become unhappy about it, they'll, they'll stew about it for a long time, and they don't just leave quietly. They have to go and they have to talk to everybody else and try to get them to come with them as well. And that's the beginning of a church split right there. That's how it happens. It's basically just a campaign of slander is what it becomes. Whether it's true or not doesn't really matter ultimately. Okay? The church's job is to deal with issues, not to run from them, not to destroy the church because of it. But hear me clearly, okay? I don't think any of these problems are in this church today, okay? Some of you might be thinking, 
what columns does Jason think are in the church? Okay, so that's not what I'm, that's not what I'm thinking. But when you do set out to do something for God, you will face opposition from without. Warren Wearsby once said, opportunity and opposition usually go together. The greater the opportunity, the greater the opposition. And then he quotes a verse that I wanted to quote earlier, but because he quoted, I left it, okay? First Corinthians 16, verse 9 says, For a great and effectual door has been opened unto me. Paul's saying a great opportunity is right before me. God has opened a door for me to do something for him. But, Paul continued, and there are many adversaries. With those great doors, with those great opportunities, there will be adversaries. There will be opponents who stand in the way. So first of all, they faced opposition from without. The second thing they faced was the hardship of life. Okay, when you start out to do something for God, the craziness, the busyness of life will oftentimes choke out your passion to do what you have determined that you're going to do. Verse number 13 says, Now when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John departed from them, returned to Jerusalem. So here we see that Paul's ministry, Paul and Barnabas's ministry was an itinerant ministry. They were constantly going from place to to place. And I think it's not insignificant that the very last phrase of this verse says, and John departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. There may have been some connection between the busyness of their ministry and John forsaking them and going back to Jerusalem. These people didn't have a whole lot of time to sit and to settle, right? When you look through the book of Acts, how many different cities was Paul in? Constantly, he was in a new city. Why, why was he in a new city usually? Because the people were trying to kill him, okay? So usually the people were trying to kill him, and so he would get up and he would go to a new city. <clears throat> but Paul was constantly on the move. Even in his ministry on the island of Cyprus, he was traveling across the entire island, preaching the gospel. And here in these verses, we see that he goes to Perga in Pamphylia. Now there's historical records that draw a connection between Sergius Paulus and this city, because he had family members there. So most likely what has happened is Sergius Paulus, who believes, is worried about his family. And he asks Paul and Barnabas, hey, can you go and preach the gospel here where my family are so they can hear the gospel as well? And so they are constantly moving in their ministry. Living for Christ adds its own pressures to life, does it not? Going to church multiple times a week, can that get exhausting? Anybody? No? Maybe? Maybe I'm the only one? Okay. So, okay. <laughs> Extra time reading your Bible and praying. That can fill up your schedule, right? Trying to teach your kids the word of God. That can fill up your schedule. There are days when I, I, I commit in prayer and in devotions. I'm like, Lord, I'm going to do the right thing today, and I'm going to make sure I'm the father I need to be to my kids. And by the end of the day, because I'm doing all the things that I need to do, you know how much time I ended up left with? 30 minutes to an hour, okay, so before I got to go to bed to get up in the morning. That can get exhausting, you know, sometimes to think about all the things that I need to do if I want to please the Lord and how busy it makes my schedule and how busy I can be. And sometimes you feel like you just need a break, okay? And honestly, there is a place for rest. There is a place for breaks. There is time, and you got to schedule that into your life as well. I recently read an article on micro-stresses and Jim, I don't know if you read it when I posted it or if when Christina reposted it afterwards, but it's been making its way around, okay? So, but Micro Stresses That Pastors Face by Tom Rayner. And he gave this illustration. In 1967, Silver Bridge over the Ohio River 
collapsed from what they called micro-fractures in the bridge over time. A small fracture formed in the bridge which left it open to degradation from salt and water in a load-bearing component of the bridge. The load shifted to other parts of the bridge which eventually overloaded the bridge and caused it to give out. 46 people died from this accident and it changed the way that bridges are inspected from that day forward. It's just an illustration. I don't know if some, any of you, nobody was alive. Okay, yeah, some of you were alive in 67. I thought it said 46 at first. I was like, nobody was alive then. I don't know. Okay, so, you know, but 1967, some of you may remember this, this event, but what caused that bridge to collapse was over time, little tiny fractures in the road that eventually wore it out and wore it down. And I think when we are trying to do what's right, we're trying to serve the Lord. When we're in ministry even, pastors or regular people, we constantly face micro-fractures in our lives on a day-to-day -day basis. I think of dealing with children who whine and fight all day. Can that wear you down? And if you think you have children who don't whine and fight, let me tell you, you got children who whine and fight. We all do. Okay, so that can wear you down over time. Maybe Joshua and Josiah, I don't know. No, okay, so... <clears throat> But dealing with children who whine and fight all day can wear you down, especially if you're a mother and you have to sit there and listen to it all day long, right? Worrying about paying the bills, can that wear you down? Can that be a struggle? Figuring out how am I going to pay all these bills, okay? Being emotionally present when you're an introvert. I added this one because this is me, okay? So being emotionally present when you are an introvert. Introverts don't want to talk to people. It costs us something to talk to people. It costs us emotional effort push ourselves to go talk to people. Can that hurt? <laughs> yes, that can hurt. That's me. I have to force myself sometimes to talk. And that is a micro stress on life. Deadlines. Deadlines at work. Do you have to get things done at work at a certain time? Okay, you may think, Jason, you're a pastor. You don't have any deadlines. You set your own schedule. Guess what? My deadline is at least Sunday. I got to get these messages done by Sunday. And average each message takes minimum of eight hours to write if I'm doing my job the way that I should be doing it. Okay, and you got Wednesday, throw that in there too. And all these other things going on. But there are deadlines that, that can be stressful. Worrying about how am I going to meet this deadline. Dealing with criticism from others. Okay, that could be a micro, a micro stress because it's just oftentimes it's a little, little thing. How many of us are constantly just picking, just slightly picking at other people, you know? I struggle with this, right? That can be a micro-fracture that wears down on people. Being pulled in different directions by different groups, okay? I feel this as a pastor too, okay? So you got this group, they want to do this. This is the exciting thing they're excited about. This group over here, they're excited about this thing. And you're like, how am I going to do all of it? I can't, I can't, I'm being pulled in multiple directions, you know? But your kids are like this too, right? Your kids want to uh, Levi wants McDonald's for every meal, and Chloe wants steak and eggs for every, no, so she wants some fine dining for every eggs. So you get, you get this pull, it's easier to say, no, Chloe, we're not doing that. Okay? So McDonald's, yes, we're doing that. It only costs $13 to feed the whole family. Okay, so, you know, but you get these things that pull you in opposite directions, and that can be stressful, that can pressure you. Worrying about how things are going to turn out, just general worry about the future. I don't know what's going to happen. That can be a micro-stress that tears you down and weakens you. Paul and Barnabas, they're moving from place to place. In the beginning, they had John Mark. What was his job? He was their minister. He ministered to them. John Mark was basically the guy that came along and said, you guys preach, 
and I'm gonna help you by taking care of everything else. I'm gonna make your life easier for you. That was John Mark. But in verse 13, what happens to him? He's gone. So the rest of that missionary journey, what, what do Paul and Barnabas have to do? They gotta do all of that extra on top of it. And that's added stress in their ministry. It could have turned them away. They could have said, you know what? It's too much. I'm done. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I can't handle it anymore. I quit. This happens a lot. We get too bogged down. We get too busy. And we get to a point where we're worn down. We're tired. And we just want to quit. It's not that anything's, anything per se is wrong, but these stresses wear down at you over time. And Paul and Barnabas faced opposition from without, but they also faced increased daily stresses because of the hardship of life. But thirdly, they faced abandonment and betrayal. Verse 13, verse, uh, the, second, the second half, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas faced another form of opposition, abandonment, betrayal. Verse 13 tells us that John Mark leaves and he returns to Jerusalem. And on its own, this verse seems to be neutral. It's not negative. It's not positive. It doesn't tell us why he left, does it, right? And so we could come off thinking, well, maybe he had only committed to traveling with them through the island of Cyprus, he's done, which was where he was from, by the way, as well. He has family there, okay, because he's related to Barnabas. Maybe he thought, I'm done with Cyprus. I'm going to go back, back to Jerusalem. But we get clarification on what actually happened here in, in Acts chapter 15. Let's go ahead and turn there. Acts chapter 15. <clears throat> verse 37 through 39. Actually, we'll start in verse 36. And some days after, Paul said unto Barnabas, let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. So they're getting ready to go on their next visit. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. But Paul thought not good to take him with them, who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed unto Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, confirming the churches. Okay, so this gives us a little bit broader of a picture of what actually is happening. Whatever happened when John Mark left was important enough that Paul was not in favor of taking him again. He didn't want to take him again. In fact, the word departed here in Acts chapter 15 carries the idea of abandoning. He, just, he didn't just leave because he had already arranged to leave. He abandoned Paul and Barnabas. He forsook them. John Mark left them in the lurch, you could say. He had forsaken and abandoned them. And, and this is even more poignant because to Barnabas, John Mark was family. And this family member left him in the lurch, abandoned him. Sometimes family is going one of those groups, those closest people that you expect to be for you, that will oftentimes stand against you. Psalm 27, verse 10, when my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. Not everyone is going to stand with you when you choose to do what's right. But are you going to let that deter you from doing what the Lord has called you to do, from the life that God has asked you to live? This isn't just a ministry-related topic. This is, you know what the Bible says, 
and you are determined you're going to obey God's word, you're going to face opposition in those moments as well. When everyone else abandons us, this is the truth that we need to latch on to. God is our refuge. Psalm 142, verses 4 through 5. I looked on my right hand, and beheld, there was no man that would know, that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my souls. You can feel alone, oftentimes, standing and doing what is right, especially in a world that rejects God's word and doesn't want anything to do with him. The rest of the verse, though, says, I cried unto the Lord, unto thee, O Lord. I said, thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. It is at these moments that we need to fall back on the Lord. After all, he said he will never leave us nor forsake us, right? So when everybody opposes us, when we're opposed from without, we're, we're struggling with the burdens of daily life, and we're opposed and a, a betrayed by those who are within, we need to fall back on our refuge, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in conclusion, there are three things that I want to challenge you with, okay? When you face opposition, when you face obstacles to doing what is right, God's plans and his purposes will prevail. We believe God is sovereign, right? God will accomplish the thing that he wants to accomplish, despite the obstacles that we face. Ellie Mayus stood against Paul and Barnabas, but ultimately he was standing against God himself. And those who oppose the work of God should seriously consider that fact. Who is it that they are actually standing against? Our first consideration should always be, is this what God wants me to do? Is this the will of God? If it is the will of God, it doesn't matter how impossible it seems to be. The doubters don't really matter in the end. If this, I know this is the will of God. Because God can do what seems to be impossible. And we can, we can take comfort in knowing that God will accomplish his will. I don't have to make this happen. That's, there's comfort there. I don't have to be good enough to make this successful. God can do it. God has to be the one to do it. Romans 8, 31, what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who could be against us? Okay? So God will prevail, ultimately. If it's God's will, he will accomplish his will. Second thing, we need to remain steadfast. Steadfast means unmovable, in place. Don't waver, don't wander, don't give up, don't quit, just because things get hard. Endurance is a word that's in our Bibles, right? Endurance, okay? Endurance takes work. 2 Timothy 2, verse 3 says, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Doing right, serving God, is not always going to be easy. God has told us, he has commanded us to endure hardness, to do what's right even when it is difficult, even when it is hard. Many people miss out on the blessings of God that God has in store for them because when things get hard, they just quit. They just stop. Serving God is not always going to be easy. Thirdly, we need to trust God's guidance. God will take care of you. When you feel like the world is against you, remember who told you to do what you are doing. God has told you to do it. He's going to help you. He's going to be there for you. God has called Paul and Barnabas to this ministry. We know that clearly. That's why verses 1 through 3 are there. It is obviously clear. God had called Paul and Barnabas. Do you think that God knew that the very first thing that they would face leaving Antioch was opposition? 
God knew that before he even called them. And he still called them to do this. Trust God that he knows what he is doing. The difficulties are in life, of life are intended to grow us and to make us better, to help us spiritually. So remind yourself of what God led you to do and don't allow yourself to slip into despair and doubt and discouragement because of the difficulties that you face. As a pastor, this, this message is important for me. But I want you guys to understand this. Every moment that you choose to obey God and do what's right is also going to face opposition as well. And you're going to have to fight the fight. You're going to have to endure that hardness. You're going to have to continue on doing what's right. That's, it's just as much as hard for you to live your daily lives for the Lord as it is for me to get up and try to preach and be opposed and face these different things and these different obstacles. And I understand that. But God is our refuge. He is our strength. And let's find our strength in him. Let's all stand. We'll have a time of invitation.